Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. Today, I am so honored to have with me Dr. Daryl Stickle. He uh, he has a broad background in the world of trust. This is so important for today's leadership. This is so important for today's individual, just as a good human in the world, being able to understand what makes for a great relationship, understand how trust is built how trust could be broken, and then how could trust be reestablished if it's ever broken? So I, uh, when I found Daryl, when he came across my radar, I'm like, yes, I want to interview him. Dr. Daryl Stickle. Daryl, welcome to One Sharp Sword. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. P. Yeah, uh, it's, a it's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Well, let's, let's talk trust. Let's talk okay. about what you do, how you do it. Um, you've worked for McKinsey in their Toronto office. You've uh, you've been on faculty at the Luxembourg School of Business. You've advised the Canadian military. I, there was a time that I actually did a, a presentation for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but I didn't okay. to their full-on military. Uh, you have a book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World, and I just, I, I want to talk about trust. Um, I want to talk about how you got into it. Part of what I do when I interview guests is, is I start with the premise, like you didn't wake up as Dr. Daryl one day, you, <laughs> and you didn't wake up going, you know, trust is my, my thing. I'm going down this path exclusively. Right. So, so, so. <laughs> So talk about little Daryl. How did, how, like, where'd you grow up and how did you grow up and how did you, you know, along the way, probably in college, you probably figured out that trust was a thing. Right. And, and then you did your grad school stuff. So talk about like your journey. Yeah. Your journey. It's exactly right. All right. So uh, I was born and raised in a small town in Northern British Columbia, Canada, a place called Fort St. John. There were about 12 or 13,000 people there when I grew up there. And it was a place that had a lot of heavy industry. So oil and gas, uh, mining, lumber, pulp and paper, those kinds of things. And it was a rugged place. Uh, minus 40 in the winters fairly often. That's uh, cold. Yeah. You, you hear <laughs> you the phrase rugged. too cold. That's, that's just flipping cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when you grow up in a place like that, people learn that they have to pull together. There's a sense of community. Um, and there was a sense that the strong should protect the weak. And that if you could help people, you should. And, and that's what I grew up with. And I had an older brother who uh, was very protective. Him and his friends were some of the toughest, meanest guys in town. Um, and so I grew up, with the ability to say what I wanted to say and to stand up for people. I didn't like bullies. And so I was able to stand up for people that I may not have been able to stand up for on my own. Um, 
Now, I was also uh, visually impaired. I, I eventually became legally blind. Um, but I knew at a fairly young age that I was going to lose my sight. And so I decided that my my really only path forward was to train my brain so that I could think for a living. Mm. And uh, my father was a welder. He had a grade eight education. Uh, my mother was a waitress and then worked at a dress shop and those kinds of things. Um, and so I, I knew that I had to follow a different path. Um, when I was 17, I was playing hockey. I was, I was on a juvenile team that was 17 and 18 year olds. We were playing in a junior B league, which was up to 21. Um, I got attacked by a fan with a club and beaten almost to death. Uh, and it, it left me with a really profound concussion. Um, and I went from being on the honor roll to having the attention span of a fruit fly. And all of a sudden, all the things that I'd been working towards, all of my plans were, looked like they were gone forever. Um, I felt helpless. I felt hopeless. Um, I felt profoundly vulnerable. And I developed a sense of empathy for others. You know, Wayne, sometimes a hard road's a good teacher. I mean, yeah. sometimes it's just a hard road, right? But but if we can take lessons from it, um, I learned how to connect with others in a way that I hadn't before. How did you not get bitter? You know, it's you you had two options at that point. One is, you know, you're basically someone stole something so uh, integral to who you were, right? Someone stole that from you and you could have become the most bitter person in the world. And instead your heart grew three sizes or however many, and and you became this compassionate and empathetic, uh, good, like even better human at that point. How is that possible? It's a good question. I mean, I had, my life had been a challenge. You know, when I was very young, my father was involved in a car accident on his way to work, lost his leg, uh, cracked his pelvis, broke his hip, crushed a couple of vertebrae in his back. He struggled with pain for the rest of his life and he self-medicated with alcohol. And so I was not unfamiliar with pain. I was not unfamiliar with life being unfair. Um, and as weird as it may sound to some of your listeners, it felt like there was a purpose for me. I had developed the narrative in my head that God had a plan for me and that I was intended to do something and that I would need to be strong enough to manage that. And so there were tests coming my way. And we interpret the world through stories. Yes. and. Part of our choice is which story we cling to, what story we feed. Mm. And, you know, all the way through elementary school and high school, I'd always been someone who was smarter than most of the kids in the class. And I tried to help them. I tried, you know, people would come to me and say, I'm struggling with this problem or I'm struggling with this question. Can you help me? And so I was always helping people. And 
it was part of that mindset of if I could help people, I should. And, you know, bullies aren't just physical, they're intellectual as well. And so when some of the smarter kids would pick on kids that weren't as smart as them, I didn't like that. I, I would protect them. I'd pick on the bullies. And so this was just another escalation of that. You know, I had been wronged. I had been profoundly injured. But there was still a place for me to be positive and proactive and helpful in the world. And, you know, I, I would find myself, when I, when I moved to Victoria to go to school, I'd find myself sitting on the bus and people would just come and sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. Mm. Wow. You're, and, you're that guy that's the magnet for. Yeah. So it's great. And I kind of thought, you know, Hey, if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should get paid for this. Right. And, and so I started down a class a path towards clinical psychology. I, I worked with troubled teens and worked on crisis lines and I worked on with families in crisis and street kids. And I was trying to hone those skills. And then eventually, you know, the families that I was working with were pretty, pretty dysfunctional. They were having a hard time. And I came to realize that a lot of them were doing the best they could. And that even if you could see a path forward for them, they, they couldn't take it. And I thought this will drive me crazy. Mm. And so I shifted into public administration and I did a master's degree in public admin. I was working in native land claims and they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, that's it. That's, that's my question. And I spent the rest of my life focused on that. Um, you know, I went to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on it. And again, it's hard not to see that there was some intentionality of the universe because the year I showed up, another, an academic showed up who was one of the leading experts on trust. And the year after I showed up, a woman showed up who was also one of the world's leading experts on trust. And they were both on my committee. And when I finished, they said, we were sitting down to have a drink these, with these two eminent uh, scholars, and they said, okay, so when you first came to us and said this was my thesis topic, we had a conversation, and we, we said, it's too big. It's too hard. He's never going to solve it. We'll give him six months, and then he'll come crawling back to us. We'll let him chisel off a little piece of this, and that'll be his thesis. We said, six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we could do is sit and watch. And said, here we are. We think you've solved it. Mm. And partly it was those lessons that I had learned, the insights that I had gained by working with people who were struggling, by seeing people who were vulnerable, by helping at different points. There was just a path that I had followed that others hadn't. And it combined with the knowledge and expertise that I developed. It was a journey. Wayne and and then I went to work for McKinsey. Um, I was there for a couple of years, and they said, "Well, you got great client hands. We're going to send you to the worst places possible." <laughs> so, you know, wherever there had been a strike or a hostile takeover or people were unhappy that we were there, I got sent. And 
I was getting to apply these concepts. And then in 2001, I was in a cab on the way to a client site and the cab I was in rear-ended another vehicle. And I picked up my, I don't know, maybe my 10th or 12th concussion. And I ended up with post-concussion syndrome, which meant that I had fatigue and problems with concentration and memory. And, and I couldn't work 80 to 100 hours a week anymore. And so I started the little company called Trust Unlimited. And, you know, a, a guy that I had worked with had become head of strategy for a mutual fund company. And he asked me to just, he said, just come talk to us. And so I find myself in front of several hundred people. And I'm talking to them about sustainable competitive advantage of all things. Mm. And I said, it means you do something better than your competition that they can't copy. You don't do anything I can't copy. You're a mutual fund company. You know, all I have to do is buy one share of every fund you have. And now I know how they're all built. And I can sell what you sell at a discount because I don't have to pay the fund advisor. The CEO looked like I'd hit him in the forehead with a sledgehammer. I said, the only thing you can do is build deep, long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And so they paid me to develop my thesis into a workshop. And that was the first workshop I delivered. And I I worked with everyone within that organization. I spent 18 months with them. And when we were done, they hired a professional survey firm, found out that trust was the primary driver of the sales decision but they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors, which they hadn't been before. And they generated 75 cents out of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. And so now I knew that what I had worked wasn't perfect, but it worked. And they were part of a global investment firm. They started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these folks were doing. So then I started applying it to other places. You know, I worked with nonprofits, worked with the Canadian military, trying to help them figure out building trust with the locals in Afghanistan, worked in finance, heavy industry, technology, worked with families, applying the model all over the place. And I just kept learning. So for the last 20 years, it's just been a journey of learning more and more and figuring out how to help people understand not just the model, but how to apply it. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, it's, you know, I often talk about the most dramatic moves that any of us can make. Um, they're simple, but they're not always easy. Mm. And it's sort of like, it's right in front of you. Just, you know, just, it's, it's really kind of simple. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet taking that step, you know, the first the first step is the courageous step, like having a real conversation with somebody and choosing to be slightly vulnerable and choosing yeah. to, you know, not be somebody, but to be you and to step in and go, this is, you know, I'm selling you this. And <laughs> and, right. and anybody could sell you this. The difference is I actually want to get to know you and to, to figure out if what I'm selling is the right thing for you. Right. Right. And it's, it's a different way of stepping in. It's, you know, you step in from this place of lack of please buy my stuff. Cause I need, I need the quota. Uh, and instead of that, you step in from a place of, of confidence, which is the vulnerable you going, I don't know if it's right. Let's find out. <laughs> you know, like, right. It's an exploration process. I love everything about what you've said, Daryl. I love everything about it. 
Um, I, I am aching to hear some of the steps, like what's your sure. formula? How do you, how would any of us, whether we're, uh, you know, there are people in my audience that range from uh, those that work in a warehouse right. all the way up to uh, all the way across industries to uh, bank presidents. I've interviewed one on the show. Um, right. And so it's a, it's a broad spectrum. And the thing that we all have in common is this humanity. Right. So, so talk about that. Cause I think that is really the thread that we can, we can all pull and hold on to as well. So, yeah. And I'm just, I'm getting, I want to just acknowledge, I'm getting chills here, Wayne, cause it feels like such a strong connection. Yes. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, yes, I, I work with really broad range of folks, right. From, from families, just trying to sort it out to senior executives. Um, and trust is a social lubricant that allows us to function. It allows societies to work. The research is really clear that higher levels of trust mean we're able to be more effective. It means we're able to be more uh, imaginative, that we can be more agile, that we can, you know, it's the thing that differentiates leaders from being just okay to being exceptional. It's, it's the thing that's allowed me to future-proof my kids um, by teaching them how to build strong relationships, because that's something that's never going to lose its value. And so for me, this, this plays for all of us. It, it and the model holds, you know, I've taught it when I was in Luxembourg, I taught people from all over Europe. And when I worked with a company called SAP, I taught people from all over the world. And the response is, yeah, this works. So when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. First question is, how likely am I to be harmed? And that's perceived uncertainty. And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? Which is perceived vulnerability. And so we have uncertainty times vulnerability, gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. If we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so building trust becomes a simple matter of understanding where does uncertainty come from? How do I take steps to reduce it? Where does vulnerability come from? How do I take steps to manage that? And I believe that there are 10 levers that we can pull. We all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. And my passion is helping people move along the continuum from wherever they are to a better place. So those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever. I have these kinds of credentials, this sort of background, this much experience. Those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so what I do with my book and the masterclass that I've got and the, the coaching that I do and every, every place that I intervene or help people is I help people understand what the levers are and how to pull them. So uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals, and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. 
And 99% of the research focuses on that individual piece. And it talks about these three levers that we can pull, benevolence, integrity, and ability. Benevolence is the belief you've got my best interest at heart and that you'll act in my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest. Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises and do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability is, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And then the context is the rules of the game. It's the formal and informal mechanisms of social control that constrain our behavior. And so to the extent I'm able to explain my context to you, it makes it easier for you to predict me. It reduces your uncertainty about me. Love that. <clears throat> I love that. I love that. So those uh, are four of the levers. That's, a, uh, that's amazing. Um, Four of the levers. I have benevolence, integrity, ability. What's the fourth? Context. Context. Thank you. I. Uh, this is great. So I have, a, I have a couple of TED Talks out there, TEDx's. And one of my TEDx talks is on how a parallax perspective can disrupt perceptual bias. Okay. Which is a really fancy way of saying... If you look at something from a different perspective, you will need to let go of the um, the assumptions you've made going into that context. So it, I basically challenge the viewer, the listener, to make only one assumption in the world, and that is that you're missing something about the context of the situation, the other person or yourself, your own blind spots. Mm -hmm. And that seems to hit on a couple of the ones that you've talked about, right? That, you know, if you've got the ability to say, okay, I know there's more, what is that more? That's a, that's an ability and a willingness yeah. to step in and look at something differently. The benevolence of, you know, I, I'm choosing to do that because I believe that that's in the best interest of both of us, right? That's benevolence. Yeah. It's kind of like I'm choosing that. The integrity of um, I'm daring to do it. And, right. And I'm, I'm willing to follow through to do it. And then the context is the context of this is the situation. I, I'm okay in this context. I, uh, I also wanted to say it's interesting because you talk about uncertainty. You didn't say it in these terms. Uncertainty comes from within and is also based in the situation itself which is the context so you are listening to one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most with your host dr wayne pernell you know you are bigger than the life you are leading it really is time to attend to that thing you've wanted to do or have but you've been putting off it's time to step into that dream you've parked for someday. It's time to claim true well-being, both personally and professionally, without giving up the success that got you here. It's time to check out Dr. Purnell's signature small group retreat, the Exponential Success Summit. Explore ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Seats are extremely limited as this is a very special small group event www.exponentialsuccesssummit.com
I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit sure. by making by making an assumption. I don't want to fast forward our conversation because this is this is incredibly rich, and I'm loving every piece of this. Um, people get into trouble when they believe they should have control. Right. Is that right? Like, I just I wanted to, to jump to that. Like, from my from my perspective, when I do executive consulting, when I when I go into corporations, um, you know, one of the funniest things that made me slap my forehead was in talking about collaboration. And and I had a leader say, "Well, of course, we're all about collaboration. If they would do it our way, we'd be collaborating just fine." <laughs> and the problem the problem is he was serious. Yeah. So, so it's like we're all about collaboration. They just need to do it our way. Like right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, like the uh, I'm just saying that I think that that people believe they can establish trust by imposing it. Right. In what you're saying is that most of trust is established by choosing to pull your own internal levers, levers, uh, and be come from a very different space. Other than you're going to control the situation, right? Did you ever do martial arts? By the way, uh, I did a bit of tai chi. Okay, tai chi, and I was going to reference aikido. Right. Because the way to have control, and you probably know this from Tai Chi as well, the way to have control is sometimes to yield to the force that is being imposed upon you. Right. Um, yeah. So that you're, you're nibbling around some really important concepts here. And that's awesome. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> again, yeah. it's sort of like the from goosebumps to excitement. It's like, yes, this is awesome. So, so to, to have you here, this is really good. So one of the challenges that we see in the world right now is the fact that if, if, as I've said, uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. If uncertainty is high, then we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability. As uncertainty starts to go down and that relationship gets deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. We have seen vulnerability stay fairly constant in the world, but uncertainty is spiking all over the place. And that means it's really hard for us to be any more vulnerable than we already are. And so the, the concept you're talking about when you're talking about control, I see this with parents, I see this with leaders, senior executives, it's that willingness to let go of certain things that willingness to be a bit more vulnerable when we're experiencing so much uncertainty is really hard. And we see this with parents, you know, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to my kids. And so I can only tolerate a small range of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. How do I get there, Wayne? Do I, do I do it by monitoring them, uh, imposing strict rules, trying to control their behavior, knowing that, if I'm successful, I've set them up really well to be controlled by whoever comes along next. Or do I talk to them and say, okay, I'm terrified. I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you. 
And so there's a profound level of anxiety for me when I don't know what's going on. And I include them in the conversation and they start to reduce my uncertainty for me. That's the healthier way to go. And that's, you know, what you didn't say is I'm terrified. That's why I'm holding on so, so hard. Yeah. Said, I'm terrified because I love you so much. Yeah. I don't want harm to come to you. That's the benevolence piece. I have yeah. your best interest at heart. I, um, you know, I, I think in analogies and this is like grasping water. The right. only way to grasp water is to open your hands and let it come into you. Um, the tighter you hold on, the less you have. Exactly. Oh my God, Wayne. We're like brothers from another mother. I, I It's really great. This yeah. is so good. I never know who I get to talk to. And this is like, uh, it is a, it is definitely a love connection here, Daryl. That's, that's fabulous. So, so, uh, and at the same time, if we think about this uh, for leaders, they cling to the things that got them to where they are instead of stepping into the new skills that will make them exceptional and brilliant in their new roles as they grow and evolve and develop, they are terrified to let go of the things they're good at. And they're afraid of that vulnerability. They're afraid of making mistakes. And the problem with that is that they then communicate that message to everyone else. Inadvertently, they're telling everyone else it's not okay to make mistakes. And one of my advisors, uh, Sim Sitkin, wrote a piece on the gains of small losses, where he basically said, if, you're, if your people aren't pushing to the limit of their abilities, you know, if they, if they push to the limit of their abilities, they're going to make mistakes. If they're not making any mistakes, it means they're being conservative, cautious. And so many of our leaders now are terrified. If I make a mistake, no one's going to believe me anymore. I've got imposter syndrome going. You know, and, and things are moving so fast. The definition of what a good leader is isn't the same now as it was 10 years ago. It's too true. Um, you're familiar with the confidence competence loop. I am. Yeah, that's where agency, personal ability is. And, you know, one of one of the riddles that I pose to leaders is what happens if you don't step out of your comfort zone? And the answer to that riddle is absolutely nothing. Uh, right. Right. Because if you don't step out, you're going to continue to do the same things that you've always done in the same way. You won't have any gains. And, and you know, confidence is built based on the recovery of not doing things exactly right. You build competence by doing things and learning from them. So um, that's the confidence competence loop. And it's, it's ever expanding if you let it be right. Um, you know, and I, I want to share something with you too, from a personal perspective, I, uh, came to my kids slightly differently. Okay. And it was, I came to them basically saying, look, I do, I come to you with trust. I trust you in the world. I want the best for you. And I'm never going to wrap you in bubble wrap and say, be safe, be safe. Like that's the control. Right. So, so I raised my kids with this saying, and that was risk. Well, okay. I and like that, that was right. Like I, I trust them not to play on the freeway. I trust them not to pick up a, a snake from the bitey end. You know, it's like, right. I trust them to, to have certain knowledge. And if they don't have that knowledge, 
I trust them to say, I would like to learn more about this before I engage there. Right. Um, and so risk well is about try new things. I want you to try new things. I want you to, to learn. I want you to experience. I want you to try new things. And um, well, and they have that safe Harbor to come back to. Yes. Right. And that's, that's the piece is we give them a place from which to launch and they can go out in the world and make mistakes. And the world's a hard place. Yes. But I start with a relentlessly positive story about my kids, which means that new information that comes to me gets interpreted through a positive lens. Yes. And I'm always open to hearing their side of the story. And, you know, my, my oldest son wanted to get a baseball scholarship. And I said, okay, so for you to get a baseball scholarship, that means you got to work really hard. You've got to get good grades. You've got to, you know, perform well in baseball. You've got to have good relationships with your coaches, good relationships with your teams. You need to eat well. You know, so there's all these things that could lead to that. And his interpretation of all that was dad's got my back. Dad's benevolent. He's on my side. And as opposed to dad won't get off my back, right? He's constantly harassing me about stuff. What, what is his deal? Yeah. You said you wanted to do a baseball scholarship. You get into your room and you study. You do this. You do that. You do that. Yeah. And it's very different what your approach. Yeah. Right. And so once they have that positive narrative, once they have that positive story, you get all kinds of room to make mistakes, to have questions, to have yeah. conversations, to have it interpreted positively. That's leadership. That's I mean, what if, what if every leader in every company said, I've got your back until you prove to me that I don't. <laughs> right. It's like, right. Yeah. And I, I'm going to make mistakes. Yeah. Right. If, Watch if they how said, I handle them. Yeah, exactly. Because crap happens. It's how we respond that matters. And so, you know, when my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, dad, I know you've always, you're always about what's best for me. Even when you're upset with me. That's awesome. And I thought I'm winning. You right? are. So I have these incredibly positive relationships with my sons. Um, and it's because I use the model I use and it's because I am really transparent and open with them. And they, they talk to me about things, you know, I, sometimes I look around, I go, Jesus, your dad might hear this. Um, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's me. That's awesome. So, yeah. And we, we want them to be coming to us, right? Not to somebody else. No one loves them more than I do. No one's going to put their interests ahead of their own more than I will. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Really so positive. So what's the, you know, what, let's say we're talking to the leader of a division. Yeah. And um, I know that you've done some work in mergers and acquisitions, mm -hmm. um, which means a blending of culture. Right. Um, one of my pet projects right now is uh, a, a work in progress that I'm calling building a culture of caring. Okay. And the idea is, you know, if we look at what's going on in uh, in North American business and probably business around the world, uh, the pandemic taught us that we actually value different things than very often what's happening in the office. 
Right. Um, we actually value learning. We value relationships. We value being uh, doing something that's meaningful. We value being acknowledged for that thing that's meaningful. Yeah. Um, so now we've got leaders that are going, well, what, what is this culture thing? How do we even build it? Um, and, and why can't they just do their effing jobs? <laughs> I actually had a leader say that out loud to me once. Okay. I was I was working in human resources for a major company and um the leader was like, "Why can't they just do their effing jobs?" except he didn't censor it very much. Right. So, so I'm like, "Well, they're trying." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like, "What are we doing to support them in doing their job?" It's funny, buddy. You should ask me that because one of them was just in here asking me the same thing about you. <laughs> right? It's not funny. That's awesome. It's exactly right. I uh, I did push back quite a bit on that one. Um, yes. So, so so let's let's take this to a practical level, right? Yeah. We have, we have people watching or listening to this as a podcast, and you know, in their day, they're going to cr- come across situations where. Um, there are opportunities just on a day-to-day basis with a partner, with a coworker, yep. with with an up level or a downline. What can somebody do differently? Think differently. Like what is like if you know part of the work of the psychologist is to bring the subconscious conscious or to bring a consciousness to an action, right? And so, what is it that? you know, we can advise our leaders to do. And I believe, by the way, everyone is a leader. Right. You're being, you're being watched. Your behavior is being watched. How you respond or react is being watched. So what can, what would you say, just in general, you know, this one step or these three things will make you a better human right. or a better leader? So you're staring right into my sweet spot. Yes. <laughs> so, um, because there's a ton of people talking about trust and how important it is and how little we have of it, but almost no one is talking about how to build it. And that's what I do. And that's what the book is about. And that's what the masterclass is about. It's about helping people actually have practical applied things that they can do. And so I worked with a leader. I, she's a great leader, um, but she was new in her role. And her organization measured trust levels and hers was at 13 out of a hundred. Mm. And so her, her boss asked me to have some conversations with her. Mm. So I leaned in and um, talked to her about the different levers we can pull and how to pull them. But then I talked with her team while she was there. And I said, here's what benevolence is. It's the belief you've got my best interest at heart. So what could she do to show you benevolence? What would that look like? What is success for you? And so I'm priming these conversations and giving them a vocabulary. So what are the, you know, let's talk about integrity. What are the values that the organization expresses? Are they following through on them? What are the promises that they've made or that she's made that she's either followed through on or hasn't? What does good look like? What's Mm -hmm. ability? And let's talk about the context and how she's constrained and what she can and can't do and how she gets evaluated. So we better understand. and. Now, all of a sudden, they've got a shared vocabulary. And her score went from 13 to 80 within three months. 
Wow. It's been pinned at a hundred since. And what did she do differently then? So partly it's, it's creating a narrative or a, a way that we can talk about these things that we normally don't. If I say, do you trust me, Wayne? The appropriate answer is with what? Right. But, but our initial instinct is like, oh my God, I can't say no, because that'd be rude. But I don't really, I'm not really sure what he's asking for. Like, what's the next question going to be? It's sort of like someone, you know, a friend that you sort of know calls you and says, hey, what are you doing like Saturday morning? Yeah. And it's like, well, uh, like you can't say, oh, nothing, because you might be roped into helping the move. Or, or, yeah. Right. Yeah. I've got this blockage in my sink that I need you to help me figure out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so I'm a big fan of, of clarity, right? It's right. Like, look, I'm after this. How, uh, like, and I, I know I don't have the full perspective. What do you see? Right. And so part of this is including other people in the conversation. And I loved what you were talking about for your Ted talks. One of the things I do when folks are, are struggling to get along. So I've, I've worked with senior executives that are having a hard time. I'll go to executive one and I'll say, what's your story? What's happened? What's going on? And then I go to executive two and I say, what's your story? What's happening? What's going on? Then I bring them together and I say, okay, executive one, I want you to tell me what you think executive two story is. Nice. And so I get them to do that for each other. And what it does is it forces them to think about that other person's perspective. And it goes from us having two different narratives to creating a shared narrative. And so that's, that's one of the approaches I take, but if, you know, in all of my stuff, and I'm not trying to flog content here, but in the book, in the masterclass, in the, you know, the deeper dive courses that I offer, I give people templates for conversations and I give them something that we call the trust canvas, which is a series of questions that they can ask to include the other person in the conversation. Because let's, let's focus in on benevolence. It's one of the levers. It's one of my favorites. Um, when I'm working with families, I'll say to them, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? I've got this group of parents in front of me and all the hands go up, right? It's a stirring sight. Then I flip the question and I say, how many of your kids would say that? And it's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how does a leader demonstrate that, right? How do they make it land? And so we make it land by actually including the other person in the conversation. So the conversation I arm people with, and, and your guests are welcome to sort of rewind and go through this one a few times. You're going to talk to someone about benevolence tomorrow. You're going to say, I heard this guy, Daryl. He was talking about trust. He said, benevolence is one of the levers that leads to people trusting us. And that, that means having someone's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person's going to go, oh my God, yes. Or I've seen it or because we've just about everyone's experienced it. So you're not, you're not saying, have you ever experienced that from me? You're saying, have you ever had that experience? In right. The in the so world where you it's were not like a 360. It's not like you're checking not at the start. Okay. Not at the start. Cause we're starting broad. 
Yeah. And we're saying, have you experienced trying to act in someone's interest and it backfiring or them not seeing it? And the, the person will go, oh my God, yes. Then you narrow the funnel a little more and you go, have you ever had someone really have your back? Really feel like they were benevolent to you? Like they really wanted to help you? Yeah. Okay. What, what was that like? What did they do? And now we're starting to have a, a richer conversation. We're priming them, right? We're also getting hints about what benevolence looks like for them. And then we narrow the funnel a little more and we say, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? Mm. And now we've created transparency. So if, if I'm a leader and someone says to me, I want to get a promotion, then from that point forward, I can say to them, okay, if you want to get promoted to the next level, this is what the expectations are. And that means that I'm going to hold you to a higher level of accountability than I did before. And I may give you more responsibilities to see how you handle them. And it's also going to be on you to help me make the case for other stakeholders that you should get that promotion. And so you're going to have to step into the spotlight in certain places. And so it's not about being nice all the time. I may be tougher on you than I was before, but that's benevolence. And because it's transparent, you know what the narrative is. You know how to interpret it. Hmm. That's awesome. And so that's how we pull that lever, right? That's great. You know, very often teenagers, for example, need to know that boundaries are there. That's how they know that it's safe. Right. And and their job as teenagers is to push against them. And our job as parents is to hold them in place and say, no, no, these really are the boundaries. Right. And that's how you know you can trust me is because I'm holding these boundaries. Um, that By doing that, you actually build trust. It feels like you're just being hard on me. Um, and yet those that have survived raising teenagers have the benefit of having the team come back and go, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I worked at a drop-in center for street kids. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I was the guy who imposed the rules. Yeah. And the the kids there loved me. Yeah. It's safe here when he's here. It's, you know, I I was the guy that and they would gather around. You know, I would I would give them let them choose their own space because that's one of the things with with people in general. Find a spot, stand there, and let people choose how close they want to come to you. Mm-hmm. And be conscious of that. So I would, I would find a space and then the kids would gather around me and start talking. And, um, the guy who ran the place said, I've never seen that before. What do you do? I said, I just let them choose the space and I make them safe. I make myself available. Right. Yeah. I used to, uh, I used to work with status offenders, which means that if they were 18, years or older, the laws that they broke wouldn't actually have been broken laws, you know, running away, um, that kind of stuff, staying out. Um, And so I I was at a group home and it was very similar. It was very similar. The the whole idea of I'm here for you guys. Like, it's a, you know, don't blow it. Just like be a good human with me. I'll be a good human with you. We're, we're here. Like, yeah. You know, and every once in a while, they test the boundary, and you show them it's still there. Somebody once described it to me as as like the night watchman. They check every door, praying to God that it's locked. True. 
because <laughs> that means things are okay, right? And that you care enough that you're paying attention. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, all right. You've referenced the book. Uh, yeah. This is, this is great. I'm going to say it one more time for, uh, for the audience real fast. It's right in front of me. There it is. Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World by Daryl Stickle. Um, I want to know how I find your masterclass. Um, I want to know, like, how do people find you? How do people, besides the Building Trust book, how do people get more of you? Um, so, yeah. You so have, th- you have other freebies as well. In to- so if, if they go to the blog... If they go to trustunlimited.com and go to the blog section, there's articles there. I've actually written a piece on trust and parenting. Um, there's a couple pieces on rebuilding trust with the police. Uh, there's there's pieces around trust and leadership. So there's there's articles there that people can access. The master class is in the courses section. Um, it's about three hours in length. It's broken up into five-minute segments, really focused on here's the concepts. Now, here's some things to practice. And the book is the same way. All of it is intended to help scale this work. Um, I don't want it to go away if I do. And I want people to actually, I felt like I was dropping grains of sand in the ocean, right? Like I was having this powerful, profound impact, but I need people like you and your listeners to help me pick up great big rocks. Yeah. Trust is at the lowest levels we've ever seen, and we can build it. We we can. It's a skill that we can build. We can yeah. be intentional about it. And so, um, if folks, I don't want them to just buy the book. I want them to apply the concepts and practice. And so they can reach out to me at Daryl at TrustUnlimited.com, D-A-R-R-Y-L at TrustUnlimited.com, uh, or on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm happy to help. That's awesome. Um, you know, one of my big, hairy, audacious goals, right? The BHAG, the, my big goal is to deliberately, actively, positively impact the lives of a billion people. That's one eighth of the world population. Okay. And, you know, I'm doing that a person at a time. I'm doing that a podcast at a time. I'm doing that with, you know, 2 million views on my, on my Ted talk. That's awesome. You know, it's getting, it's, it's getting there. Um, And it's also by extending my reach through people like you, where, you know, the idea is do some good in the world. And it's a ripple because if just one person, if you, if you, the listener, you, the, individual listener because if i go hey everybody who's listening you should do this it's like that's everybody else i'm saying you listening to this right now if you pick up daryl's book and you apply one action step from it you will have done two things uh three four things you know basically you will have made an impact in somebody else's life you will have made an impact in your own life um, and the ripple effect from that is sevenfold. Usually it, it touches lives of people that you never see. Yeah. So uh, I just, I'm so appreciative of having you here, Daryl. It's, uh, it's incredible. You know, this has been a really fast hour and yeah. uh, 
you and I were just getting started. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. 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 We've got to be friends, Wayne. That, that seems clear to me. I worked in group homes and receiving homes as well. So there's just too much overlap. Yeah. I love this. I, um, it's one of the benefits of doing a, of doing a podcast is I never know who I'm going to meet. And sometimes it's like, Oh, that was fun. And other times it's like, Oh my gosh, I've got to, you know, I've got to stay in touch with this person. Yeah. And, um, and you are one of those people, right? So, ah, all right. One more time. Uh, trustunlimited.com, Daryl at trustunlimited.com. But, uh, uh, and with that, trustunlimited.com, go to the blogs, go to the, um, the courses, pick up Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. My copy is due to arrive tomorrow, by the way. It is coming to my Nice. Copy. Um, and, um, I would love to hear your thoughts about it after you've read it. I, I'm, I'm excited about it already. Just, uh, you know, if, if it goes into more detail than we've discussed here and I'm certain it does, it then, does. Yeah. You know, then it's like, it's golden. It's absolutely golden. So. And it's written in a way that people can actually understand and read it. I, yeah. I really tried to make it accessible to everyone. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I have five books out there myself and, and when I write, you know, I started my first book and I thought it was going to be oh so academic. And I'm like, nobody's going to read this. Like, no. and I, I rewrote it three times before I put yeah. it out. And, and from there, every book has my voice in it. And I get that sense about you too, that you're, you know, it's not just theory. It's like this works. And there's a, there's yeah. a benevolence that comes through. I haven't read your stuff yet, but I, I'm imagining that your voice and your sense of have you yeah have you i've got you um really comes through so i'm 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 very much looking forward to it so great daryl thank you for being here thank you for having me on wayne i really appreciate it what a great experience truly <laughs> truly all right daryl stickle was my guest today this is incredible daryl stickle uh get the book building trust and um and and drop me a line when you read it because i'm curious about how it affects you as well uh this is one sharp sword which is better than a thousand dull knives one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most i'm your host dr p dr wayne purnell the exponential success coach and i will see you here next time Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor.